Okay, so I'd like to start out this morning uh, with a question, with a question, and the question is, do you act differently when you know something is about to end? Do you act differently when you know something is about to end? Uh, A couple of examples, like if you've ever lived in a city for a while, and then um, maybe two or three years, whatever, you're moving somewhere else, and you've got like three months left in the city, do you act kind of differently when you know your time's about to end? Usually you do. You maybe go to a restaurant you've been saying you wanted to go to forever, or you tell somebody that, you know, that you really care about them because you know you're getting ready to leave and you're going to be in a different city. Or anytime you're leaving a job and you know you only got two weeks left, which it's not the best example in the world because if you have two weeks left in a job, sometimes you might do something that's not very redemptive. But on the, on the, on the positive side, maybe you have a coworker that was just a fantastic coworker, and you act a little different than you did for all the years that, that you worked with them before because your time is coming to an end. I know for any of you who were, who were maybe athletes in high school, um, the last time you got to play football, the last time you actually strapped on pads and a helmet, man, and you know that's the last game you're going to play. You leave it all on the field. Um, and some of you, too, uh, I have two, two younger brothers. My middle, my middle brother back in Tulsa, he, um, he has two, two kids. His oldest is 10, okay? So if your kids usually leave the house when they're like 18, we were talking the last time I saw him, if he's 10, he has less time in the house than he's already spent in the house. And he's sort of looking at those years, kind of seeing each one of them as a little more precious because he sees that his time with his son is going to come to an end eventually. And so you want to make the most of it. So it's kind of a rhetorical question. Do you live differently when you know something is about to end? Yeah, you do. And, but why? why? Why do we do that? Because we, we want to end well. Um, we don't want to hold anything back. We, it helps us sometimes prioritize. What you really care about the most comes to the forefront. And so um, one of the things that I would say about that is um, I feel like I've been complimenting you guys as a congregation quite a bit, either like when, I, when I'm on the microphone or maybe even if I'm just talking to people. But one of the things that I love about you guys is that you all live with a sense of urgency. I've met more people in this congregation than anywhere else that really live with a sense of urgency, with a spirit that says, I don't want to waste a day. I don't want to waste a day. And the thing I love about that is it's super biblical. And you probably know this verse, um, but it's Psalms 90, verse 12. Psalm 90, verse 12 says, Teach us to number our days carefully so that we might develop wisdom in our hearts. It's a really cool verse, Psalm 90, 12. And so many of you guys live out that verse. Teach us to number our days, to see each of the days we have left as precious. And when you see each day as precious, you start to want to be a lot more wise with the time you have left. So, and you guys do a great job of that, of living in light of eternity. So, it's, this definitely connects with the passage that we're talking about this morning, which is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. It's not a very long passage, 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. This is the sixth sermon in our series on 1 Peter. So Doug will be back next week, and he'll wrap things up in chapter 5. Uh, but in, in a lot of our scriptures, uh, this, this particular portion of 1 Peter is titled End Time Ethics. So how, sh- how should you live in light of the fact that we live in the end times? So if you would, stand with me, and I'll read our passage for us, and then we'll pray. So 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11, 
says, the end of all things is near. The end of all things is near. Therefore, because of that, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Lord, we do pray that you would bless the reading of your word. Um, we, we believe, just, we just want to tell you that we believe collectively that your word is active and it's living and that when we speak it, it doesn't return void. And even just the very speaking out loud of your word, um, you inhabit your word. So we pray that just even in the reading of it, you would change our hearts, change our minds, um, all for your glory. And in your name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. So of all the, uh, of all the passages that you know, you have the chance to talk about, this one, it preaches really easy, okay? So it says, we're living in the end times, and then there's four things here that you should do. Boom, 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 boom. Really, it's almost so easy that you can sort of stumble over it when you, when you try to prepare for it. But also, I would say, you know how sometimes you listen to somebody speak, and you're like, that was really good, but I'm not exactly sure how to apply it to my life. If you walk away from this morning, and you're not sure how to apply this to your life, then... I don't know, you get serious ADD or something because this is like the most, the most practical, like apply this, this is how you apply it lesson that I've, that I've had to give in a, in a while. So one of my first questions with this passage is what, what, is, what does Peter mean when he says the end of all things is near? Two things. What, is, what, is it, what does he mean when he says it's the end? And what, is, and what does he mean when he says it's, it's near? So we could spend a long time talking about this, or we could spend a short time talking about this. So the short answer, the quick answer to living in the end times is the end times is the period between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the return of Jesus Christ. That's the end of time. That's the church age. So when Jesus was resurrected and Jesus is going to come back one day, that's the time, that's the time that we're living in. And, uh, and so then he says that you're supposed to... Um, the end of all things is near. And so I want to reference two passages from the New Testament just to kind of put these in context. One is Luke 21, 34 through 36. This is just one example of Jesus talking about the end of time and how we should conduct ourselves uh, with a sense of urgency as opposed to a sense of apathy, a sense of urgency as opposed to a sense of dullness. And so Luke uh, 21, 34 through 6, Jesus says, Be on your guard so that your minds are not dulled from carousing, drunkenness, and the worries of life. One of the things, you know, I, was, I think this will apply. I, I was a runner for most of my life, especially in, in high school. I ran a little bit in college, but in high school, uh, one of the events I ran was the mile. And so the mile is four laps on the track. First lap's pretty fun. The second lap is hard. The third lap is the hardest. And the fourth lap is kind of easy because you can see the finish line. And so I think life is sometimes like that. When you're in the middle of life, it's easy to, I don't know, it's easy to forget that there's an end coming. And when the end is closer, you, your, your, your senses, I think, are, are more heightened. 
And so it's, you can live with sort of a dull mindset, forgetting where the trajectory of lives are taking us. You know, it's, it's appointed unto a man once to die, and when you do, you're going you know, to stand before the judgment seat. That's a fact. That's going to happen, and we forget that sometimes. And even talks about the fact, um, dulled from carousing, drunkenness, and the worries of life. Sometimes just the worries of life, just doing the daily, monthly routine, kind of makes you forget about where you're ultimately headed. So going back to Luke 21, uh, the worries of life, or that day will come on you unexpectedly, like a trap. Jesus told us many times that I'm going to come like a thief in the night. It's going to be a surprise. For some reason, that's the way he set things up, that it's going to be a surprise. And so it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth, but be alert. Again, there's this juxtaposition of being dull or being alert, being sober-minded or, or not. Um, be alert at all times, praying that you might have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So, um, that's very true. We believe that. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded. But then there's a part of me, kind of the realistic side of me that comes in. And, and, and you, can't live, you can't live every day of your life like it's the last lap of the mile. Like, you can't live every day with that much intensity because you'll burn out. So, a little bit of the practical side of me comes in and says... You know, if I knew Jesus was coming back in a month, uh, I mean, I wouldn't worry about my budget. I wouldn't worry about fixing my car. I wouldn't worry about my health. I would just, I, you know, I would live in light of eternity. But somehow or another, we have to find some kind of a wise balance of how do you live with a sense of urgency, not, not having any idea when that might happen. And so there's a passage in James chapter 5. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 8, that does a really good job of balancing the fact that you should have a sense of urgency, but you should also be patient at the same time. It's kind of like uh, the days of Noah. I see a real connection with the days of Noah. Like God said, it's going to flood. It's going to flood. It's going to flood. I promise it's going to flood for 120 years, okay? Um, I mean, I think, to be honest with you, I think it's, it's a way that some people could look at Christians and say, you know, Jesus said he's coming back. Jesus said he's coming back. And that was 2,000 years ago. Like, really? Like, it, it could be an opportunity for, I don't know, it's a, it's a way where people could make fun of us, I suppose. But James 5, verses 7 through 8 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. And here's an example. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and late rains? You must also be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. So again, it's, this, it's these two things that don't seem to go together. Be super patient, but then be like on your toes. Um, so there's four things that Peter tells us that we should do. You know, you know, you say you would probably agree that you live differently when something's coming to an end. Peter gives us four things that we should do in living in, in this church age in the end times. So one is to be prayerful, verse 7. The end of all things is near, therefore be alert and sober-minded for prayer or for your prayers. Um, there's, there's a good friend of mine, um, one of his favorite verses in the Bible. It's, it's from Isaiah, but it's quoted in Ephesians 5.14, and it's, uh, Wake up, O sleeper. Wake up, O sleeper. 
And um, it's so simple, but for him, I don't know if he just struggles with laziness and sometimes, you know, there's some people that like it when people just tell you, you need to be doing this. And he just, it just really speaks to him like, you need to wake up. Wake up, oh sleeper. Um, and so we need to be alert. Uh, I was talking this week uh, just about any kind of recommendations I might have if you go in for an interview, not if you're interviewing someone, but if you're being interviewed. And, um, you know, you need to be prepared and that kind of thing. But I think the best thing, my best piece of advice is that you need to get a good night's sleep and you need to eat a good breakfast. Because when you show up for an in-person interview, you have no idea what people are going to throw at you. You have no idea about questions, this, that, and the other. And you just need to be alert and on your toes. So we need to be alert and on our toes in the sense of the way we live um, our lives here and now. And somehow or another, that's going to have an effect on our prayers. That's going to have an effect... If you live in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back, you'll pray for things that you wouldn't pray for otherwise. So this made me think um, of your mindset affecting your prayers, your mindset affecting your prayers. I'm like, I've heard about this before. And it's just in the chapter right before chapter 4, chapter 3, Peter's talking to husbands and wives, and he's talking to husbands in particular, and he says, Husbands, you need to live with your life, with your wife in an understanding way, so that your prayers may not be hindered, so that your prayers won't be hindered. So your mindset affects what you pray for. In the same way, if you, if you, had, if you have the end of times in mind, it, it will affect what you pray for. So I'll share one thing with you. This, this isn't anything that anybody um, necessarily taught me. It's sort of something I've discovered in the last year. Um, you know how you want to do everything for God's glory and you want to pray everything to God's glory? So um, usually when I pray, I'll pray for this, that, and the other, this, that, and the other, this, that, and the other, and then I'll say, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. As if to say, everything I just said was for your glory. But I got to thinking, is everything I really just said w- really with his glory in mind? And so I kind of challenged myself to say, what if before each sentence you pray, you say, Lord, for the glory of your name, I pray you would, and then the next sentence, for the glory of your name, I pray you would, this. For the glory of your name, I pray you with this. And for some reason, hearing that before every sentence, there started to be kind of new things coming out of my mouth. And so one challenge I might give you today is maybe try that in your personal prayer life. Just say, Lord, in light of the fact that you could come back in any time, I pray you would strengthen the persecuted church. That's well, not something I normally pray for. Lord, in the light of the fact that you could come by at any, back at any time, I pray you would be lifted up and draw all men to yourself. You'll hear different stuff coming out of your mouth sometimes if you preface um, a sentence um, in in an intentional kind of way. Because that's a lot of what we're talking about this morning is living life in an intentional kind of way. So that when you're done and you meet Jesus, you'll you'll be proud of of what you were doing um, before you met him. So another challenge I would give you related to prayer, and this is something I actually have not done. I would like to take this challenge. Um, I would, the challenge is record yourself praying for five minutes and then play it back and listen to yourself. Because we pray, we pray all the time, right? But sometimes you, don't, you, don't, you never really listen to yourself. You will change immediately some of the things you pray for when you hear yourself just praying for five minutes. It can be super awkward, and then the, uh, the double bonus challenge would be to record yourself praying for five minutes and then listen to it with someone else, if you're really brave. Um, 
and uh, it has the potential. Whenever you whenever you bring more exposure to the things you do, um, it really has a chance to. Uh, you look at that and say, "Whoa, I'm not doing that anymore." So, um, the first thing Peter says is that we should pray. So, and keep in mind that we're talking about uh, the, the time of First Peter. You know, Peter's from what I've read, Peter's about 60 years old. Jesus was crucified maybe 30 years earlier. The church has been a thing for maybe 30 years. And, and, and a lot of the Christians have been dispersed from Jerusalem, dispersed abroad. Uh, I think verse 1 of 1 Peter says, to the elect exiles, to those in Christ who are scattered everywhere. And um, <clears throat> these people are experiencing like real persecution. Like you may have, some of you may have experienced hardcore persecution um, here. Most of the time, it's maybe just somebody making fun of you, but these guys are experiencing the potential of death. And so in light of, in light of this environment that we're living in with real, true suffering, how should you live? And the first thing he says is that we should pray. And the second thing he says is that we should love one another in verse 8. So verse 8 says, above all, Peter's straightforward kind of guy, above all, may maintain constant love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. It kind of made me think of the verse uh, Romans 13, 8 says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. There's a lot of things in your life that you can finish. One thing in life that you never finish is the need to, to love others. And so love um, is a mini-splendored thing, as they say. There's lots that we can say about love. There's so many things we can say about love, different ways to find this, that, and the other. We find a lot in um, First uh, Corinthians 13, but Peter gives us one thing to chew on, to narrow it down, which is, which is nice. He says, love covers a multitude of sins. So if you want to just think about one aspect of what love is, love covers a multitude of sins. So if you're taking notes, uh, Proverbs 10, 12 is where that's quoted from. Proverbs 10, 12 says, love covers a multitude of sins. It also makes, and I, I want to sit on this subject for a minute and, and challenge you to, to think about your, just your, your position on this. Uh, Proverbs 19.11. Proverbs 19.11 says, It is to the glory, or it is to one's glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs 19.11 says, It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. And this verse says, Love covers a multitude of sins. So what, is, what, is, what does Peter mean when he says that you're supposed to cover sins? Because there's a part of me that says, you know, if you see your brother in sin, re rebuke your brother, and if he repents, then you've won your brother. We're supposed to call people out whenever, whenever we're doing things that we're not supposed to do as a Christian. But if you talk about covering over sin, it almost sounds like you're asking me to, to be an accomplice for something or to just keep giving you a pass for bad behavior. And so... How do I, I mean, I believe that verse is true, that love covers a multitude of sins, but there's also a lot of other verses that seem to say that, uh, to some degree, you need to expose it so, th so that you can begin living rightly. And so how do you keep those things in balance? One thing that this story, may, or this passage made me think of was the story of Noah uh, after the flood. You guys may recall it's in uh, Genesis chapter 9. You can start in verse 20 if you want to read it later. Genesis chapter 9, verse 20. Um, so the flood has happened, and um, so there's eight people left on the earth, and uh, Noah grew a vineyard, and then he made some wine, and he got drunk, and then he passed out in his tent. 
okay? So um, one of his sons found him. His son Ham found him. And what the story tells us is that Ham told his brothers Shem and Japheth. Okay, so one son finds the dad in an incredibly exposed position, and he go finds his brothers. And the story seems to imply that Ham was like, wouldn't it be fun to laugh at dad? Wouldn't it be fun to laugh at dad's mistake? And the cool thing the two other brothers do is they, they recognize what's going on, and so they, they turn around and they says they put a cloak kind of between them and they walked backwards so that they wouldn't see, you know, what their father done, and, and they covered him. And Ham's behavior is definitely condemned and the other two brothers' behavior is definitely uh, applauded biblically. And so it seems to me that there's a lot <clears throat> you can draw from that. Um, one, there's a couple of things I've, I've written down here that it makes me think of 1 Corinthians 13, 6, that says, love finds no joy in unrighteousness. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. And one question I might ask you is, do you get some kind of delight sometimes when you see people mess up? Like maybe you feel like it brings them down a notch, so maybe you can compete with them a little more or something. Like if there's anything in our hearts that when we see someone who's committed sin and there's a part of us that wants to expose it, I don't know, somehow to make them feel more shame or to make you feel better about yourself. Like, it's just laughing at other people's mistakes is not something that we should do. Um, there's a way to bring up sin that exposes people to shame, and there's a way to bring up sin that allows people to keep their dignity intact. Now, even that's a little tricky, too, because the very nature of confessing your sin is definitely, um, you definitely lose your, your dignity. Like, for those of you who are in Christ and have asked, um, you know, God to forgive you of your sins through the blood of Jesus, <laughs> I mean, it's an embarrassing thing to say, I'm wrong, I need help, I need forgiveness. There's just, there's a lot of exposure that goes on there. Um, but we do it anyway, because... We need salvation, and we reach out. And I think there, there, is a, there is a part of, I don't know, having your sin exposed where you sort of should be um, shamed to some degree, but there's a way of interacting with people where you can sort of delight in their mistakes, and there's a way of interacting with people where you really are trying to help them. And so I don't have like a strong sentence to necessarily conclude that with, but I would just, I like to talk a lot about the fact that maybe you can talk about this over lunch, like with your friends or your family. This is a good thing to talk about over lunch. Like what does it really mean to, to cover, love covers a multitude of sins? Does it just mean that we're supposed to be forgiving? Um, uh, you know, and, and how do you balance that with the fact that you are supposed to rebuke? Like, I, I don't know if it's, it's one of the, major prophets where God looks at, he looks at the, the priests and he says, I'm very angry with you in the fact that when you look at the people, you say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Like as a leader, as a leader of God's people, I am, God says, I'm not happy with my people, but you keep telling them everything's good. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. And so we don't want to look at people and say everything's okay when everything's not okay. So how do you, how do you wrestle that out? So I want to leave that with you kind of, open end, kind of open-ended and kind of on purpose. So moving on to the third thing uh, is that you should open your house, verse 9. So in light of the fact 
that you're experiencing persecution, that you've been dispersed from Jerusalem, that life is hard, what should you do? How should you live differently in the end time? Be hospitable to one another. And then Peter puts a little flourish on the end, and he says, be hospitable to one another without complaining. For some reason, lately, I, uh, I, I like to be reminded that, that the fact that one of the qualifications for an overseer in the church is that you actually should be hospitable. Uh, so 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.8. 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.8 say that one of the qualifications for a leader in the church is that you actually should be hospitable. And so a really helpful thought, well, well first of all, if, if you really put yourself in the context of this passage, <clears throat> um, you can imagine persecution and suffering taking place, people being dispersed from their homeland, and you can imagine how comforting hospitality would be. Whenever, who knows what's going on with your family, and maybe you didn't intend to live in this city, but you are, um, the warm comfort of good company, being received, someone being, being glad to see you, a meal, a bed, and this kind of compassion makes hard times more tolerable. And for those of you that have the gift of hospitality, uh, keep using it. It's a good thing. But I was encouraged by this. For those of you that don't have the gift of hospitality, I don't have the gift of hospitality, um, you can still be hospitable. You can still be hospitable. So even a lot of the overseers in the church, they might not have the gifts of hospitality. But are you the kind of person that people feel welcome around? Are you the kind of person that when you're like, uh, I don't know, he always seems busy, or I don't know, he always seems kind of angry, or I don't know, it always seems like whenever I ask him something, he's like, he's always in a huff or whatever. Like, are you the kind of person that people are welcome around? Are you hospitable? So even if you don't have the gift of hospitality, you can still be hospitable because the truth is there's actually a difference between um, hospitality and hosting because somebody could be really good at hosting, I mean a pro at hosting, but when you go into their house, you don't feel comfortable sitting down because everything's perfect. And like, so you could still have the gift of hosting and not really be expressing the gift, gift of hospitality. So, um, and then he says, be hospitable without complaining or grumbling. And then this got me to thinking about something else too. So you're both supposed to be hospitable, but without complaining. And I'm like, didn't, he, didn't somebody in the Bible talk about leadership? And if you have the gift of leadership do it without complaining or something. And then when I looked a little bit, I'm like, oh yeah, that's Peter in the next chapter. So First um, Peter uh, 5, verses 2 um, through 3 says, if you shepherd a group of people, do it willingly, not under compulsion. It's kind of very similar to the tone of what he's talking about with hospitality. If you're going to do something, be glad you get to do it. Or, or don't do it. If, if you have the gift of leadership, don't be like, oh, why, why do people always look to me for direction? Why? Like, if you're going to do it, do it willingly, not under compulsion. And then finally, uh, in light of the end times, uh, the, the final thing is to serve others with your gifts. And that encompasses verses 10 through 11. So, just as each one of you has received a gift... And one thing I like to remind people of, just so, just so we're really aware of like what's in our Bible and where things are in our Bible, there's four places where you can find the list of gifts that God has given to those of us in the church. And I like to say it's the twelves and the fours. So the twelves and the fours. So Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4. Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4. It's kind of a 
um, an easy way to remember, like, where are the passages that talk about all the gifts? So just as each one of you has received a gift, use it. Use it to serve others as a good steward of the varied grace of God. And then he gives us two examples, okay? The two examples, one of them is more of a public gift, and one of them seems to be more of like a behind-the-scenes gift. If anyone speaks, all right, that's it's more obvious, like the parts of the body that you can see a little more as opposed to the parts of the body that are internal that you can't see. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. Some, some translations say oracles of God, basically just saying, you know, God's words. Um, and if anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. One example, this is, this is not, a, not, the, not the, you know, super most powerful example in the world, but we need to be reminded on a regular basis that we're stewards of God's gift. And so, of God's gifts. And so, like, I have, I have a little truck. Uh, I have a little truck. And let's say I was going to be gone for like two years, and I picked somebody to be the recipient of that gift. But the relationship would be such as, I just want you to know, um, it's not yours, it's mine. Okay? And you're the steward of my truck. And while I'm gone for two years, I want you to help people with it. So I want you to use it to serve others. You've received a gift from me, and I want you to use it to serve others. And if I come back after two years, and I'm like, well, what'd you do with my truck? And you're like, I don't know, maybe you had a dull, you weren't, you weren't sober-minded and alert. You just sort of had this dull expression. I'm like, what did you do with this gift? Did you help, did you help anybody, like, pick up a Christmas tree? Or did you help anybody move? Or did you, what did you, what did you do? And they're like, I sort of thought it was mine, and I kind of did some stuff, and like, what, what? And I, I think sometimes we, f- we forget that the gifts that, the gifts that you've been given, um, I, I like, I like being, I like thinking about the fact that the gifts that you have, they're not for you, they're for other people. The gifts that you have, they're not for you, they're for other people. So if somebody tells you you're really good at something, you know, when you put your hand to that, it has a special you have a special knack to do it better than anybody else. That's not so that you can feel better about yourself. Those things are to be used. Those things are to be used to, to help others. And so um, the things that you're good at, they're not for you. They're for others. And one, one other comment that I would make about giftings is that sometimes, um, maybe when you're younger and you're trying to figure out what you're good at, Sometimes when you're older, you realize that you have a gift. You have, that's really fun. Like, you, you think you know yourself pretty well, and then you have some new experiences, and you're like, whoa, I'm good at something I had no idea I was good at. I think that's pretty fun. But when you're, when, you're, when you're coming up and you're trying to figure out what you're good at, what I've noticed is that the first signs that you might be good at something is when you say, that sounds like fun. I think I'd like to try that. That sounds like fun. I don't know if I would be any good at it at all. But that just sounds interesting to me. That sounds like, I think I'd like to teach. That sounds like, I just like to try it. I have no experience whatsoever, but it just sounds interesting to me. And I think one of the things we do great as a congregation is that so many people here are, are serving. Uh, but if you hear anybody saying that kind of thing, that like, I think I'd like to try this, or I don't know if I'd be good at it, but I think I'd like to try We really want to be a place that encourages that. We want to all be people that say, go for it. Give it a shot. Why not? What's the worst that could happen? Like we, want to, we want to definitely have an environment, which we already have, but we want to continue to encourage that environment of 
if you think you might be interested in doing something, even if you don't know you're good at yet, um, give it a shot. So uh, I would like to actually um, wrap up with, because I'm telling you, this, of, all the, of all the passages to speak about, this thing is just right there. Here's what it is. Here's what you do. Um, some of you might have had good experiences with the message, the, the message translation. Sometimes it's, it's super paraphrase of, of the Bible. Uh, I want to read uh, the paraphrase uh, from the message of 1 Peter um, 4, 7 through 11 to drive home all the things that we've just heard. So Peter says this. He says, everything in the world is about to be wrapped up. So take nothing for granted. Stay wide awake in prayer. Most of all, love each other as if your life depended on it. Love makes up for practically anything. Be quick to give a meal to the hungry, a bed to the homeless, cheerfully. Be generous with the different things God gave you. Pass them around so all get in on it. If words, let it be God's words. If help, let it be God's hearty help. That way, God's bright presence will be evident in everything through Jesus. And he'll get all the credit as the one mighty in everything. Encores to the end of time. Oh, yes. So I, uh, I opened with a question, so I'll close with a question. Um, what is one thing you could change about your life in light of the fact that the end of all things is near? Because that's what this passage specifically says, that the end of all things is near. What's one thing you could change about your life in light of the fact uh, that the end of all things is near. So we'd actually like to um, transition to a time of commissioning in prayer. So um, in terms of living, living in light of eternity, I think we always want to be training up training up leaders, always training up, you know, alongside of the fact that we, we have to remain outward focused as a church. And as soon as we start getting inward focused, the church starts to die. Um, we also always have to be training up new leaders. And so as most of you are aware, um, Brentwood Baptist has a residency program. So it's been going on for four years and um, the residents, we've had actually five of them here. So everybody knows Winston, can't miss Winston. Uh, you miss him when he's gone, and you can't miss him when he's there. Um, we also had a guy named Dave Cruz who came and preached uh, months back, and, and we've had three people that are on the worship track for the residency. So you may remember Oksana and then Mary Laura. Each of them were here for a month. And Chris Rowell, who was, uh, you saw playing the saxophone this morning, um, has been here for a month as well. Um, maybe not as many of you has met him because, you know, just that passage that we just read that some gifts are more just out there and some are more behind. He hasn't really been on the mic, but he's been doing a lot of hard work, especially as it, as it pertains to um, instrumentation. And so I love the fact that we're a church that embraces um, training up and sending out. We train people up, we give them opportunities, give them at-bats, as they say, as they say and then sending them out. So the residency program for this year is actually wrapping up um, in a couple of weeks in the middle of August. Um, and so we want to take a moment to pray over Chris this morning. So you guys have seen us do this before, but if Chris, if you want to come down here, and especially some members of our worship team, if you'd like to come on down, uh, we'll lay hands on Chris and commission him um, <coughs> to the future that is ahead. And then Mel will um, 
Mel will lead us in a prayer and then dismiss us.